0: Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. And you can find this if you're using one of the church Bibles. This is on page 2. It starts from page 2. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly... excuse me to the woman he said i will greatly increase your pains in childbearing with pain you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you to adam he said because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which i commanded you you must not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
1: My name is Stephen. If I haven't met you before, uh, one of the ministers here. Now last week as Mike said we started a series um, looking at pop-up moments in the Bible, critical moments that if you miss them you're really going to struggle to understand the story of the Bible and since the Bible is God's word to us you're really going to struggle to understand reality I'd argue, you're going to struggle to have a full picture of this world as it is in reality. Now last week we saw the first critical moment that God made the world and we saw these two things that God made the world, um, he made us humanity for relationship with him and he made us as humans for relationship with each other. Now this week we look at what's called the fall and we see humanity reject God's um, plan for this world and reject God himself. Today, in, in Genesis chapter 3, we see three points of view about God and his relationship to humans. We see the serpent's point of view, we see the humans, and then we see God's point of view. Now, just before we look at the details, though, we need to take a step back and, and just ask the, the obvious question, why are we listening to a serpent's viewpoint anyway? It's a bit weird, isn't it? God speaks, humans speak, But not animals, like it's not Narnia, right? If it sort of creeps you out, it's supposed to. Something's wrong here, something's weird and out of order. Well, let's have a look at what the serpent says when it speaks to Eve. Have a look with me at the end of of verse 1 in chapter 3. The serpent says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, the serpent's implying this. It's saying, is it true that you do the hard work in the garden, but God won't let you eat the fruit? Now, last week, we saw what God actually said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. This is what God said. You are free to eat any tree, free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you'll surely die. See, what the serpent says is ludicrous, right? Can't eat from any tree. Where does that even come from? And it introduces into creation, for the first time, the idea that maybe God is not good. It's an idea that's been with humanity ever since. The woman, at this point, she corrects the serpent's exaggeration. And so then the serpent, having introduced the possibility that God might be untrustworthy, goes for it and just totally contradicts God in verse 4. He says, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. And then the serpent presents an alternative understanding of our relationship with God in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Last week we saw the nature of our relationship with God. We saw that we're creatures who relate to a good ruler. We saw that God generously makes us to share in his work as rulers under him. And we saw that we alone on this earth are conversation partners with God And finally, we saw that God makes us moral creatures who are able to obey him. In Genesis 3, what view of God and and what view of his relationship to humans does the serpent present? Well, the serpent says that God's not the good ruler who's made us to work with him. The serpent says God is the tyrannical ruler who's made us slaves. Us humans are fooled by God. We're deprived and missing out. Our eyes are shut. We're capable of so much more. We can be gods. We can know good and evil. Knowing good and evil means deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. Instead of listening to God, we listen to ourselves. For example, when it's convenient, I decide that greed is good and generosity is bad. Now, deciding good and evil was was never going to work because it's already decided. It's already built into the world. As we saw, humans are made for relationship with God and with each other, and God has built into the world what's good for those relationships. Generosity is good for relationships. Greed is bad. See, our role is to be discerner's Of good and evil not determiners and governments societies cultures families and individuals do not have the right to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong we have the responsibility to discern what is right and what is wrong and we discern it from what God has determined to be right and wrong and these things He's built permanently into his creation. So we've seen the serpent's view of who we are. We're not privileged rulers of a a very good world, working happily in harmony with God and in harmony with each other. We're blind gods, fooled into living a deprived life in this world, working for a God who's deceived us. Well of course the um the first humans they totally disregarded the serpent's stupid suggestions. Actually Eve reminded the serpent that it's creepy when when snakes talk and told it to be quiet. Whereas Adam being a gardener and, and a bit more of a rural type just grabbed a shovel and chopped its head off, right? And sadly that's not what happened. At the very first challenge to God's goodness. At the mere suggestion despite any evidence that God might be holding out on them and probably with the seduction of the idea that they could be like God themselves, they decide to break free from God's chains on their lives. Verse six, chapter three, verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So was Adam innocent here or, or less guilty? You know, is the woman more responsible? Look at the end of, of verse 6. Adam was with her. See that? The whole time he was standing there. And what does Adam say to Eve? Nothing. Now Adam has been around longer than Eve. He's heard the commands not to eat from the tree at least once more often. And he lets a creepy snake to the talking. See, they both believe the snake. They both eat. They're both equally guilty. So what do the humans think of their relationship with God? Well, in, in reaching out for the fruit, they're saying, yes, we're deprived by God. They're saying, yes, we're able to make ourselves like him. We can open our eyes. Of course we're capable for choosing, of um, choosing for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. Or well, were they re- right in their description of themselves? Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They seem to get that bit right, don't they? Their eyes are opened. But what are their eyes open to? And they realized they were naked. What's going on here? Sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Why naked? Well, nakedness is a good thing turned bad. They know that they're naked, which is a good thing, but now they know it as a bad thing. We saw last week that nakedness, in a way, is representative of the pinnacle of human creation. You know, you've got Genesis chapter 1 and then Genesis chapter 2, in the, in the creation narrative. You know the high point where it ends is two, Genesis 2 verse 25. And this is what it says. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Nakedness represents total intimacy. It, it represents complete innocence, deep trust and knowledge of one another. There was no reason for inhibition. There was no reason for fear or shame. Nakedness is, is representative of perfect relationship. Whereas clothes represent our shame. Now, fashion labels don't really put it like that. I haven't come across a fashion label yet, that, you know, shame cover or something like that. I'm sure it's probably out there, actually. But, but think about it. Fat, uh, clothes represent our shame. It's, it's true. Clothes represent our fears, our inhibitions our loss of innocence, our loss of intimacy. See, because I don't just wear clothes. I wear clothes according to fashion. I felt the need to wear a collared shirt today. I even felt the need to iron, even though the whole time I was feeling like it's pointless. Even people who don't care about fashion don't just wake up in the morning and wrap themselves in the sheet that they're lying in and tie a rope around their waist. See, we present ourselves to each other. I present myself to you with clothes, but also that I brush my hair in a certain way. I shave, women wear makeup, and apart from a few nudists, we all wear clothes. Now, I can't be a hundred percent comfortable in who I am around you. I can't be unashamed. I can't trust you enough just to be me. You might laugh if I was nude up here right now. See? So you don't get the naked me, which you might be happy for. But what about Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve could be totally themselves, totally vulnerable with each other and not be ashamed. Something that we can't fully get our heads around because we've just never experienced it. Adam and Eve, they aimed to be like God, but they fall far short. Their eyes are opened, yes, But what they see is not their God likeness. What they see is their vulnerability. And now that they've decided to be determiners of right and wrong, they're scared of being vulnerable before each other. And they're scared of being vulnerable before God. It's really tragic. They don't become like God. They were already like God as rulers and relators in his image. They actually become less like God. And we see just how low they get. In verse 7, look at their miserable clothes that we see here. Pathetic, scratchy, itchy fig leaves, right? And in verse 8, what do these amazing gods do? They hide themselves from the true God. Their eyes are open like they wanted, but not to their greatness, to their weakness. And it gets worse, actually. They're so weak that they blame each other. Look at the absolute tragedy of Adam's reply to God. In verse 11, God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Adam blames God for giving him the woman, and he blames the woman for giving him the fruit. He turns his back on everything good in his life like a coward. And it's sad but true that that's what men have been doing ever since. We've seen the serpent's view of our relationship with God. We've seen the human's view. What does God say about our relationship to Him? Well, He says it's broken. And because our relationship to Him is, is fundamental to what it means to be human, it means that we ourselves are broken and twisted. And so our relationship with each other is broken and twisted. In Genesis 3, everything's been out of whack since verse 1 and getting worse. Humans, right, were supposed to rule creation. Instead, what do we see? We see humans listening to a snake. Man was supposed to love and protect his wife. Instead, what do we see? Well, he stands by and he lets the woman listen to the snake. He passively receives... What his wife gives him, knowing that it's going to kill them both. But while we're fallen and we're twisted and broken, we're not completely destroyed. God reestablishes order. In verse 14, you can see it there in your Bibles, he says, Snake, you're a creature. Your purpose is to be ruled by humans, but now there'll be enmity. In verse 16, he says, Woman, Your purpose is to assist with the task of filling and ruling the earth. But now you'll experience pain in filling the earth and you'll fight your husband for leadership as you rule the earth. Verse 17, God says, man, your purpose was to turn the world into a garden. But instead, your work will frustrate and kill you. We still have our purpose. God's created order still stands, but it's no longer a joy. It's tainted. But remember last week, we saw that creation is God's stage to reveal himself. The Bible and and this world is, is where we see the character of God revealed. And we see a beautiful moment here where God doesn't give up on humanity. Yes, something in humanity is dead and dying, but God won't destroy humanity. Even though we introduce evil into this world that we're supposed to be caring for, he still cares for us. Look at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife (coughs) and clothed them. God replaces their their pathetic clothes with decent ones. Despite their rejection of of him, he, he clothes them with dignity. just as a little sort of crazy tangent in a way, if you had to guess what animal God killed to make those skins, what would it be? So, you know, you read a kid's story Bibles and it's always something exotic like leopard skin print, or leopard skin or zebra. But I asked my boys once what they thought, um, if they had to guess, God had killed. And one of them said, a lamb. And I thought that's as good a guess as any it's it's probably the best guess isn't it see God will never give up on humanity no matter what the cost well back to reality and, and not my crazy tangents there should we blame Adam and Eve you know if we see Adam in heaven should we walk up and punch him or something like that well it's true that we're not responsible for tainting our identity But we're responsible for freely choosing to embrace our tainted identity. We might not have introduced evil, but we've carried on the tradition pretty well. And we're not blamed for their choices. We're blamed for our own. Now, our our world, when they think of this this critical moment in the Bible, think it sounds ridiculous, don't they? I mean, they get stuck at verse 1, a talking snake, and they write it off as completely irrelevant. Whereas when you listen to this chapter, to the critical moment it describes, it has the power to describe reality like nothing else. Other accounts of humanity struggle to convincingly explain why humans are such a complex mixture of good and bad. In C.S. Lewis's um, book, Prince Caspian, when Aslan asks Caspian if he feels ready to become king... One of the reasons he doesn't feel ready is that he's actually descended from pirates. But Aslan says to him, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor emperor on earth. Be content. The Bible and this moment, the fall, has the ability to explain why humans are such a complex mixture of good and bad. We're created good, but sin touches every aspect of our being. This is what we call total depravity. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but that we can never be free from sin in any aspect of our being. And when I read Genesis 3, I I don't hear anything that's irrelevant in fact I'm amazed that these ancient whispers of the serpent are just as much with us today as they were with Adam and Eve whispers that say God doesn't know what's best for you whispers that say humans are free to be whatever they want to listen to their own hearts whispers that say humans are capable of almost anything belief in God is holding humanity back. Now I want to um, finish and and spend a little bit of time, so stay with me, not too long, but a little bit of time. I want to finish by talking about how this critical moment helps us Christians think about one difficult area. And this difficult area is one that's really relevant right now. It's homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Now I could have chosen anything to illustrate what we've been talking about today. I could have chosen to talk about how the fall affects church or marriage or sex or pornography or parenting or work, anything, because it affects everything. The reason I chose same-sex marriage is not only because it's topical, but because I think the fall has something to say that's hard to hear for all parties in this debate. Now, as Christians, We're known as being homophobic, as hating gays. Later in the year, we're going to have three evangelistic talks. um, And we're going to ask 10 non-Christians each what they think the problem with Christianity is. And I can almost guarantee you that in the top five will be the answer, Christians hate gays. Now, it needs to be said that some Christians are homophobic. And it needs to be said that some people are homophobic in the name of Jesus. But it's not in his name. It's in the serpent's name. If we get this passage, if we get this critical moment in the Bible story and and therefore in reality, then it will change how we view homosexuals. We are not primarily on about pointing the finger at those out there. We're primarily on about pointing the finger at ourselves. Now, this critical moment tells us, without a doubt, we are sinners. The only difference between us and any other person is circumstances. And given certain circumstances, certain situations, we're not immune to committing even the most evil actions we can imagine. It's a scary thought, but the potential for unbelievable evil lies within each and every one of us. This is total depravity. And what this means is that we can't hate gays unless we can also hate ourselves and every other human being, which we don't and we can't because we're all made in God's image, even though we're shattered images. Gays are our fellow fallen humans. And in our nature, we have everything in common with them. For us Christians, it can never be a case of us versus them because total depravity tells us we are the them. We don't point our finger at them. We can't. But we do point them and every human to God. Now, as our fellow humans, we're called to relationship with gays just as much as to anyone else. We're called to want what's best for homosexual people And I don't know in the current debate between Christians and the world that we see a lot of this. Do we want what's best for them emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually? That's got to be our genuine desire. Now don't hear me wrong. Because our desire is for what's best for them, we will always point them to God and we'll point them to what he says is best for human relationships And because of that, we will always disagree that acting on homosexual attraction is good. And like we saw last week, God makes marriage for deep, interconnected relationships between equals who are different. Sex is made for marriage and God makes marriage for many things, including the place where kids will be born. Which means God's purposes for marriage can only ever be met in a man and a woman. Now it's true that marriage is tainted by sin. We've seen that. Sex is tainted by sin. But what God has built into creation doesn't evaporate. It stands forever. Marriage remains between a man and a woman. And even if our society or or government tries to determine right and wrong rather than discern it, It won't change reality. True marriage can only ever be between a man and a woman. Now, the biblical position is that some people are gay. And it's not wrong to be gay. It's part of the reality in living in a world that's been bumped off its course. In a crowd this size, there will be several people who are attracted to members of the same sex. That's not wrong. What's wrong is acting on that a huge call that God calls Christians who are gay to live out it probably means for them lifelong celibacy if you know a gay Christian who's trusting God and not acting on their orientation in this social climate they're basically a hero but it also needs to be said that that's what God calls unmarried Christians to unmarried heterosexuals too as well. We could say it's harder for someone who's gay because there's no chance for them, no possibility of marriage. That might be true. But in another sense, I think it's harder having the possibility hanging over your head of marriage, sex, children, and just being overlooked time and time again. Let me finish. See, in the end, what we all need, gays, straight people, all humanity, is Jesus. We need the one who crushes the head of the serpent. The only bit I like in um, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is the first two minutes. In those first two minutes when Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, Father, take this cup from me. And the devil is there tormenting Jesus. A snake crawls on him, you might remember, as he prays. And he stands up, and he's sweating, and, but he's resolute. And then, bang, he crushes the head of the snake with his heel. See, Jesus alone holds the keys to restore our relationship with God and with each other. Now, I realise today that I've touched on some potentially difficult issues um, for people from all different um, ideas there. If, if that's the case, please come and talk to me about it. Um, ask me questions, possibly you might not feel comfortable to do that here and that's fine, send me an email give me a call, Um, I'd love to talk to talk to you more about this really difficult but important issue and indeed all the important and difficult issues that the fall touches on let me pray Heavenly Father we need to stop and admit to you that we have turned our back on you We have turned our back on everything that is truly good in our lives. Our relationship with you, the good God, who despite our rejection of you, continues to pour out good things on us. You clothe us with dignity in so many ways, Lord. Forgive us for the way that our broken relationship with you touches every aspect of our being and affects the way that we relate to each other, the way we treat your people, Lord. We ask for forgiveness. We thank you so much for Jesus, who paid such a high price, the Lamb of God, that he was willing to die to crush the head of the serpent, to crush the effect of sin in our lives. Lord, we long for the day when he returns and we can be confident of being freed from sin forever. And we ask that you would send him back to us soon. Lord, help us to love Homosexuals and all people, genuinely, Lord. Give us the words to be able to speak in this day and age where we're misunderstood. Lord, where we are, and some who claim to be Christian are homophobic, we pray that you would open their eyes to the reality, that they would turn away from hatred and evil and to love and compassion. And that we would all, Lord, be people who speak the truth in love. Lord, empower us for this by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.